In astronomy, the unit of measure is the light year, that is, the distance that light traveling at the rate of 186,000 miles per second travels in one year, or approximately 6 trillion miles. The 200-inch telescope on Mount Palomar in California catches light which, it is estimated, left certain distant stars about 2 billion years ago. Such a figure is, of course, only an approximation. Yet there is reason to believe that it is somewhere near reality. In any event, it informs us that this universe has been in existence for an incredibly long period of time and that it is immensely large. And there is no assurance that the Palomar telescope has reached the limits of outer space. As regards the size of the universe, astronomers inform us that the sun is 93 million miles from the earth and that light from the sun traverses that distance in eight minutes. They go on to say that the nearest fixed star is four light years away, that the north star is 450 light years away, that the Milky Way, which is the system in which our sun and earth are located and which resembles a giant disk or cartwheel in shape, is so vast that it takes light 100,000 years to travel from one side of it to the other, and that out through space there are literally millions of other such Milky Ways or star clusters. Undoubtedly, there is some proportionate relationship between time and space, between the vast size of the universe and the length of time that it has been in existence. Surely it is unreasonable to acknowledge the vast size of the universe and yet limit its existence to only a few thousand years as some do. Surely those distant stars have been out there a long time or their light would not yet be reaching us. The book of Genesis gives no date for the creation of the universe other than to place it in the remote past. This does not mean that we accept the theory of organic evolution as regards the origin of life. Rather, we hold that when the earth had been brought to a sufficiently advanced state of development, God, by pure supernatural power, created life in its various forms and placed it here. There is no necessary conflict between the view that the universe is very large and very old and the Genesis account, which states that God created this system and that his providential control has been over it from the beginning. Also, recent developments in atomic physics have opened up much more accurate methods of estimating the age of the Earth than were available a generation ago. Radioactive materials, such as uranium and thorium, are known to disintegrate at fixed rates, regardless of temperature or pressure conditions, with a particular lead isotope as the end product. By knowing this rate and the amount of disintegrated product a rock contains, it is possible to estimate the length of time that the process has been going on. Some of the rocks in the Earth's crust indicate an age of between 2 and 4 billion years. At any rate, it is a very old and very stable world. Both astronomy and geology have much to teach us about the greatness of God. The figures from both as regards the age and size of the universe are so huge that they stagger the imagination. In all probability, God's plan for this earth is on a scale that our little minds are utterly incapable of grasping. Clearly, God is in no such hurry as we frail human beings so often are. Surely God has not yet displayed his saving grace to its fullest extent in this world, 
nor hath he shown what he can do with a world truly converted to righteousness. Indeed, what we have seen so far appears to be only a preliminary stage, a temporary triumph of the devil, whose work is to be completely overthrown. God's work spans the ages. Even the millenniums are insignificant to him who inhabits eternity. Those who seem so certain of the near return of Christ and the end of the present world order, it seems to us, have not given sufficient consideration to the incredibly vast scale on which God works. So marvelous is the universe, so great is the goodness and mercy of God, and so precious are redeemed human souls, that we can only conclude that God may have, and undoubtedly does have, developments in store for the human race, which shall be quite startling, developments concerning which we have scarcely dreamed as yet. Assuming that the world is approximately two billion years old, the two thousand year period that has elapsed since Christ came and accomplished his work of atonement is only the one millionth part of that time. This means that the length of the Christian era compares with the age of the world as one second compares with eleven and one-half days, or as one minute compares with two years. For God to bring the world to an end now, after having spent such a relatively short time working out the fruits of the Christian era, would be as if a man were to spend two years building a house, and would then live in it only one minute. We know that man has been on the earth at least since 4000 BC. The time that has elapsed since the coming of Christ has been less than half the length of that period. Our work ordinarily is in the opposite proportion. If we spend six months building a house or a ship, we expect to use it for perhaps a hundred times that long. Its period of usefulness should be many times that of its preparation. Of this we may be sure, God is never in a hurry. If he spent four thousand years bringing man to the point of redemption, surely after the atonement has been purchased at such a great cost to himself, he will have something very great in store for the Christian era which is the fruitage era. Since God's work in the physical world where we are able to observe it is on such an unbelievably vast scale, surely in his dealings with the human race, man having been created in his image and made the glory and crown of the whole creation, he will continue this process until he has displayed his glory by an incredibly large harvest of souls. Surely his work in the more important spiritual realm will not be cut short either in numbers or in time until he has manifested his glory on an even greater scale than in the physical realm. No limit can be set to that number by man. God alone knows how vast the number is. From the beginning, God's program has been on a far grander scale than man has been able to comprehend. If this reasoning is correct, the human race may yet be in its infancy with a future course of development in store which may well be utterly beyond the power of our imagination to grasp. In the physical realm, we are now only on the threshold of the age of electronics, atomic power, and space travel. And who can predict what limitless fields of expansion and conquest both on the earth and throughout the universe these may open up? Dr. Warfield used to say that we still are in the primitive church and that doctrinally the so-called church fathers might better have been called the church infants. 
In any event, we may be sure that as God's plan for the church and for the development of his kingdom at large is revealed to us, it will be, like his other works, incredibly greater in time and scope than our little minds can grasp. At the time of man's creation, one of the commands given to him was that he should subdue the earth, Genesis 1, verses 28 through 30, that is, search out the laws of nature, learn to apply them for his own advancement, and so make himself master of all animate and inanimate things which have been placed here for his use. He still is a long way behind on that schedule. But beyond all that, God's work of bringing new souls, infinitely precious souls, into the kingdom is a continuing work of the utmost importance. How thankful we should be that he did not terminate that work before our time. Let us not be too anxious to wind it up and call a halt to such glorious accomplishment. Chapter 18, page 350, A Pessimistic Theory One of the results of the dispensational doctrine that the rejection of the kingdom was followed by the establishment of the church as an interim agency is that during the present age the gospel is to be preached only as a witness or a testimony unto all the nations, Matthew 24:14, without any thought that it shall be successful in making the world Christian. With both the king and the kingdom absent, the church is looked upon as an expedient to which Christ resorted for the present age. There is no expectation that permanent betterment or final victory can be brought about through it. The preaching of the gospel is expected to save only a minority of individuals. It is, in fact, expected to do little more than complete the body of Christ's elect, and its primary purpose is to bring in those who are to be associated with him during the millennial reign. A corollary to this belief is that the world is to grow worse and worse until Christ returns, and that this evil course is to be culminate in the reign of the man of sin, the Antichrist. The kingdom is to be established by power, not by persuasion, says Schofield on page 977. And G. N. H. Peters says, The kingdom shall be established, not as men vainly imagine by the preaching of the gospel, but by the iron rod that shall smite down all opposition and make the enemies of Christ like the broken pieces of a potter's vessel. And again he says, his supernatural might shall be exerted in behalf of this kingdom in the most astounding manner. Quotes from The Theocratic Kingdom, page 81. This is indeed a pessimistic outlook. It has ever been the practice of dispensationalists to speak harshly of the church. They cite the parables of the tares, the dragnet, and particularly the parable of the leaven as teaching that evil will be triumphant in the world that Christendom, or the professing church as they term it, will be completely apostate before Christ returns, and that in fact that condition will be the sure sign of his coming. John N. Darby, the principal originator of the system, represents the parable of the leaven as setting forth false doctrine. It is not faith properly so called, he says, nor is it life. It is a religion, it is Christendom. A profession of doctrine in hearts which will bear neither the truth nor God connects itself always with corruption in the doctrine itself. It is interesting to note that Darby withdrew from the established church in Ireland shortly after his ordination because of the conviction that an ordained ministry and church organization was wrong. 
The Brethren Group, which he founded, refused to recognize any form of church government or any office of the ministry. Darby died in 1882, but his influence continues strong not only in the various branches of Brethrenism, but in the dispensational movement, which extends to some extent through practically all of the other denominations. This attitude has caused some people to fail to appreciate the value of, or even the necessity of, church membership, and it has caused some to take an antagonistic attitude toward the church. Schofield, too, says that leaven represents the principle of corruption working subtly, and that this is the unvarying symbolical meaning of leaven. A quote on page 1016. In another connection, he says that the predicted future of the visible church is apostasy of the true church glory. A quote on page 1276. We must reject, of course, the interpretation which invariably makes leaven represent a principle of evil, and particularly we must reject it in this parable, for here it is expressly said that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. We need only remember that the reason the Passover was observed with unleavened bread was not because of any suggestion of corruption attaching to leaven, but solely as a reminder of the unleavened bread which was prepared in haste and eaten the night the children of Israel were thrust out of Egypt. Exodus 12.39 The Passover was primarily an historical reminder and commemoration of that momentous event. Furthermore, leavened bread was in daily use by the people of Israel, apparently without any suggestion of evil. Surely they would not have been permitted to use leavened bread 51 weeks of the year and commanded to refrain from its use only during Passover week if its symbolical use was always and solely evil. Furthermore, it should be obvious to every reader of the parable that leaven working through the whole lump was intended to illustrate the transforming power of the gospel as it spread throughout the world. Premillennialism, or dispensationalism, thus looks upon the preaching of the gospel as a failure so far as the conversion of the world is concerned and sees no hope for the world during the present dispensation. It regards the church as essentially bankrupt and doomed to failure as each of the five preceding dispensations supposedly have ended in failure and asserts that only the second coming of Christ can cure the world's ills. In premillennial literature we repeatedly come across such expressions as this apostate age, the apostasy deepens, the Laodicean stage of lukewarmness, etc. Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer in An Introduction to Dr. Charles L. Feinberg's book Premillennialism or Amillennialism refers to what he terms the present insane corrupt condition of the world. Page 7 Another corollary of this belief is that the benefits of civilization that have been brought about through the influence of the church are only illusionary and that all this will be swept away when Christ comes. The writings of such a representative premillennialist as Dr. Nathaniel West illustrate very clearly the pessimistic nature of the system. He has nothing but ridicule and contempt for our alleged progress and civilization. When he comes to treat this subject, he can see nothing but evil in our modern church and world, and writes, Professedly Christian men shall do the devil's work teaching the same method of progress. Great Babylon, bearing the Christian name, a church on every corner, 
a preacher on every street, is worse than the Chaldean city whose king was God's rod to destroy and make a hissing and a desolation of Judah, the messianic state of the old civilization. The beast is still unchanged in its heart, anti-Christian still, notwithstanding its Christian order, culture, civilization. A civil structure accepting Christianity externally, the church accepting the world internally, both parties meeting halfway, the church and the world making mutual concessions, the beast Christianized, the church bestialized, she the loser, it the gainer. Proud intellectual culture, science, and wealth of Christendom leading thousands away from and preventing others from coming to the knowledge of Christ. A quote in The Thousand Years in both Testaments, pages 439 to 457. This being the logic of the system, it is not difficult to see why the outlook as regards the present age should be pessimistic. If we feel that the whole secular order is doomed and that God has no further interest in it, why then of course we shall feel little responsibility for it and no doubt feel that the sooner evil reaches its climax, the better. To hold that the preaching of the gospel under the dispensation of the Holy Spirit can never gain more than a very limited success must inevitably paralyze effort both in the home church and on the mission field. Such an overemphasis on otherworldliness cannot but mean an underemphasis and neglect of the here and now. Such views tend to produce slipshod methods both in the home church and on the foreign mission field. It is only by a happy inconsistency that premillennialists holding these views can take any deep interest in social reform movements, although we are glad to say that many of them do work energetically for social progress and community betterment. Perhaps the passage most often quoted by premillennialists to prove that the world is growing worse and worse is 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 5. There Paul says, But know this, that in the latter days grievous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, haughty, railers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, implacable, slanderous, without self-control, fierce, no lovers of good, traitors, headstrong, puffed up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness but having denied the power thereof. But having enumerated these evils, he admonishes Timothy, from these also turn away. Also in the same chapter he says, But evil men and impostors shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And again he admonishes Timothy, But abide thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Verses 13 and 14 Hence he clearly was describing conditions that were then present and warning against them as present temptations, not predicting a state of affairs that would prevail at the end of the age. In every generation the alleged apostasy of the church and the alleged corruption of the world are the standing signs of the times with premillennialists which prove that the end is near and that the coming of Christ is at hand or imminent. The charge of pessimism is usually denied with considerable vehemence and it seems to be a touchy point, but the representative sermons, 
teachings and literature of the system prove it to be true. It would be hard to imagine a theory more pessimistic, more hopeless in principle, or, if consistently applied, more calculated to bring about the defeat of the Church's program than this one. But when we are told that doom hangs over the heads of men and that one crisis is to follow another, let us not be too quick to give up on the world. If we have proper ideas of God's program of redemption, we shall see that that program contemplated the entire human race as fallen and all men as equally in need of mercy. We may acknowledge that the present generation in the world deserves punishment for its apostasy and immorality and indifference. But if we are properly impressed with the mercy of God by which we ourselves have been rescued from sin, we shall not quickly and summarily dismiss the plight of our fellow men as though they are beyond all hope. We shall refuse instead to abandon the world to the evil one or to project God's kingdom solely into the future age and hold rather that our task is to win the entire world for Christ and that this task can be accomplished if we who profess to be Christians are faithful to the great commission that he set before us. We have the example of Abraham who, when he was told that Sodom and Gomorrah would be destroyed, did not merely shrug his shoulders with an air of resignation and let it go at that, but interceded earnestly for the postponement of punishment and presented intelligent reasons to justify the extension of divine mercy. The idea that the world is to be converted only by force and not by persuasion is a far cry from the scriptural principle that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of men when and where and how he pleases so that they are born again and thereby brought into the spiritual kingdom. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that though a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, it has pleased God through what he terms the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, that is, it seems like foolishness to those who do not understand it. In those words we are taught that there is no other means of salvation than through the preaching of the gospel. Hence we believe that it is a fundamentally wrong conception of what God intends to accomplish in this age to say that the faithful proclamation of the gospel is not capable of winning the world for Christ. Premillennialists stress the fact that the gospel is to be preached as a testimony or witness and almost completely ignore the fact that we are commanded to make disciples of all the nations. They forget that God's method of bringing the world to Christ is through the instrumentality of human agents prepared and led by the Holy Spirit. Earlier in this study we have called attention to the tremendously great progress that has been accomplished through the work of the church in raising the moral standards of individuals and of nations and in the improvement of social, economic and cultural standards throughout the world. We have also pointed out that so far as we know the church may yet be comparatively young with many more centuries or even millenniums in which to labor before the end comes. In view of the progress that has been made and in the absence of any clear scripture teaching that the end of the world is near, we may at least be permitted to believe that the church, concerning which we are told that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Ephesians 5.25, will gloriously fulfill her task of making disciples of all the nations and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. 
We have pointed out that the progress of the kingdom as seen from the human viewpoint is not always upward and that there are periods of advance and periods of decline. Hence when at times the future looks dark, let us keep in mind that in the long run the forces of evil are not going to triumph and that the church is not going to be defeated. We have the unqualified promise of Christ himself spoken to Peter at the time the establishment of the church was first announced. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16:18. It can be admitted, of course, that the present-day church has many faults, that there is much in it of sin and sham and unbelief. It is badly divided, and in many places it is presenting only a weak testimony when it should be strong. But in the main, the faults that attach to it are the faults of individuals. It is made up of fallible individuals. These faults do not mean that the church as an institution is to be condemned, but rather that more Christian discipline is needed, and that all of us as church members should seek to make our manner of living more consistent with the faith that we profess. The church is the only divinely established institution for the proclamation of the gospel. It is the outward manifestation of Christ's kingdom in this world. We should do all that we can to support it and to safeguard its honor. Amillennialism, too, is seriously at fault in some of its eschatological views although it does not share the deep pessimism of premillennialism as regards the present state of the world. It does deny that the world is to be Christianized before the return of Christ. It holds that there is to be a parallel development of both good and evil, with the relative proportion between the two perhaps remaining much as it is now. It points to the parable of the tares as teaching that both good and evil continue side by side until the end and holds that Paul's words, this present evil world, Galatians 1.4, are a description of this age through its entire course. It does, however, have a high view of the church as the one divinely established institution for the advancement of the kingdom in this world. Chapter 19 The Influence of Premillennialism in the Churches Page 357 we have noted the tendency of dispensationalism to develop an entire system and to multiply events in the eschatological realm. It uses a new prophetic vocabulary which is intricate and puzzling to the uninitiated. It has seven dispensations, eight covenants, two second comings, the rapture and the revelation, three or four resurrections, four to seven judgments, an antichrist, a tribulation, a millennial kingdom on earth, a heavenly kingdom, a threefold people, church saints, tribulation saints, and believing Jews, and two future and eternally separate realms for the people of God, Israel to be on the earth while the church saints are to be in heaven. It assigns a large portion of both Old Testament and New Testament prophecy, all of the book of Revelation after chapter 3, to a future fulfillment in the tribulation and in the millennial kingdom which it says Christ is to set up on the earth at his coming. That the effects of such an elaborate system on the other doctrines of scripture is bound to be profound must be obvious to everyone. 
Years ago, David Brown wrote, Some may think it is of small consequence whether this system is true or false, but no one who intelligently surveys its nature and bearing can be of that opinion. Premillennialism is no barren speculation, useless though true and innocuous though false. It is a method of scripture interpretation. It impinges upon and affects some of the most commanding points of the Christian faith, and when suffered to work its unimpeded way, it stops not till it has pervaded with its own genius the entire system of one's theology and the whole tone of his spiritual character constructing, I had almost said, a world of its own, so that holding the same faith and cherishing the same fundamental hopes as other Christians, he yet sees things through a medium of his own, and finds everything instinct with the life which this doctrine has generated within him. A quote from the Second Advent, page 6. Joseph A. Seiss, a premillennialist, says, there is scarcely a doctrine which is not more or less affected by the ground we take upon this question. Our decision will and must affect our views of the resurrection, of the kingdom of God, of death and life beyond death, of the second coming itself, of the nature and purpose of the present dispensation, particularly of the judgment and what is to come after it, and the whole condition of life of the finally redeemed. A quote from Millennialism and the Second Advent, page 67. Snowden says that the difference between pre- and post-millennialism is not merely a difference relating to a single syllable, pre and post, before and after an event concerning which no one knows the time when it may occur. A single syllable may be the pivot on which turns a large issue, as the divinity of Christ once trembled on a single Greek letter, and that the smallest in the alphabet. The question relates to the future course of Christianity and fate of the world, and so large a matter cannot be unimportant. It may not be vital to Christian faith and life as many do hold this faith and live this life without holding any definite view on this subject. Yet it is a question of great interest and cannot be without its proper consequences. Millenarianism is not a theory which can be confined within narrow limits, but is a principle that sends its roots under and its branches through all other doctrines of the Christian faith and duty. It is a pervasive spirit that insinuates itself everywhere. In our judgment, millenarianism drives a dislocating plowshare through the Bible from beginning to end. It is therefore of great importance that we subject these contending theories to the most critical investigation and seek to determine where the truth lies. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, pages 9 through 11. And Peter's, writing with special reference to the Schofield Bible, says, Through its influence there have arisen here and there tabernacles and undenominational churches composed of people no longer at home in the established orthodox denominations because they do not get there the sort of teaching they find in the Schofield Bible. In many other churches where this development has not yet reached the point of separation, the presence of Sunday school teachers and others who consider themselves illuminated by the Schofield Bible beyond their pastors form a troublesome element. 
periodicals like the Sunday School Times and the Moody Monthly frequently refer to it and always with an air of having spoken the final word if they can quote a passage from it to support their views. A quote from a pamphlet, A Candid Examination of the Schofield Bible, page 4. Almost always, premillennialism, particularly in its dispensational form, minimizes the creeds of the church and manifests the tendency toward interdenominationalism or undenominationalism. The primary purpose of creeds, of course, is to systematize and preserve the great mass of positive Bible knowledge that has been gained through the centuries by scholars and Bible students and to present that knowledge in a form that will be readily understood by the average Christian. The reasons for the attitude manifested by premillennialism are not far to seek. In the first place, none of the great creeds of the Church state the premillennial doctrine. All of them imply post- or amillennialism. And in the second place, premillennialism does not recognize the Church as the true successor of Old Testament Israel but rather as an interlude between two phases of the kingdom and as soon to pass away. Hence it cannot have any particular concern for the doctrinal formulations of the church, nor can it attach much importance to denominational loyalty. Its intense desire is for a speedy termination of the church age and a resumption of the kingdom. In recent years, in particular, premillennialism has become a seriously divisive factor in the evangelical churches. Those who hold these doctrines look upon them as precious rediscovered truth and insist on putting them forward as what the Bible teaches. They insist on talking about them in season and out of season, in setting them forth in magazine articles, and so elevate them that they become, in effect, a test of orthodoxy. Those who do not hold them are looked upon as having departed by just that much from the faith. Since these doctrines constitute such a vital part of their thinking, premillennialists usually feel a stronger fellowship with like believers in another congregation or even in another denomination than they do with fellow members in their own congregation who do not hold these doctrines. History shows the system to have been the cause of much controversy. The Brethren group in which repeated divisions occurred is an outstanding example. As a rule, premillennialists are earnest and zealous for their beliefs, but others who cannot accept these doctrines and who hold them to be serious departures from the historic faith of the Church cannot but offer opposition. This division within the church is all the more to be deplored in our day when the battle with modernism and unbelief rages on all sides. We do not blame the premillennialists for their zeal. They cannot but speak out for what they believe and feel. Oftentimes their zeal surpasses that of those who hold other views, and in that regard their example might well be followed. But that does not make the consequences any less tragic in the life of the church. It is not uncommon for premillennialists to take a superior attitude and appropriate to themselves such titles as students of prophecy, students of the prophetic word, etc., as though those who do not accept their views are not students of prophecy or students of the prophetic word. The system has an aggressive spirit and policy. 
Probably the most vigorous propagandizing campaign ever launched in this country was that begun by Charles T. Russell, more commonly known as Pastor Russell. That movement has been variously known as Russellism, Millennial Dawnism, Watchtower, International Bible Students, and more lately as Jehovah's Witnesses. While it has many features that are opposed to the usual premillennial program, it also includes a very definite system of premillennialism. Its superficial and literalistic method of handling scripture, its doctrine that the world cannot be Christianized through the preaching of the gospel, its denunciation of the established churches, its strong emphasis on a 1,000-year earthly kingdom, and its indulgence in date-setting, are elements that it has in common with what we have designated as standard premillennialism. And while it has been strongly opposed by premillennialists, such as Lewis Berry Schaefer, who branded it as a false system along with spiritualism, Christian science, and Mormonism, in the thinking of many people, its doctrines undoubtedly have done much to prepare the way for premillennialism. Hence the two cannot be said to be altogether separate and standard premillennialism must take a share of responsibility for the origin of that movement. It must be acknowledged that much of the responsibility for the popularity of premillennialism lies with the churches themselves in that most of them place comparatively small emphasis on the study of prophecy. Doctrines such as the second advent, heaven, hell, the resurrection, and the final judgment, usually omitted in liberal and modernistic preaching, have been in part at least pushed to the fore as a result of the premillennial emphasis. A study of the cults will show that in almost every instance they have arisen in an effort to correct some defect in the work or teaching of the established churches. Several of them have had premillennialism as one of their distinctive doctrines but that the churches were in some respects at fault does not make any less dangerous or misleading the false systems that have arisen. These systems in turn overemphasize the doctrine or practice that gave occasion for their rise and make a hobby out of it even to the exclusion of much other vital truth. To the strong overemphasis on the study of prophecy that is found in premillennialism, there is wedded a one-sided literalism. Catchy slogans such as, Take God at His Word, Believe what the Bible says, Don't spiritualize the Bible away, etc., make a strong appeal to the lay members of the church. If a literalistic method of interpretation, consistently applied, introduces confusion and conflict into the symbols of Scripture and leaves each person to interpret them according to his own fancy, it is this method of interpretation that is the vulnerable point of the whole system. So, acknowledging the prominence of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ in Scripture, we nevertheless should not attempt to make it the foundation on which to rear our theological system, as premillennialism is inclined to do. Logically, it should be studied after, not before, the other basic doctrines. Its purpose, and that of eschatology in general, is to bring into unity and to crown the unfinished edifice. It is a capstone, not foundation. To reverse this order and make it the starting point is to stand the theological system on its head. 
The second coming of Christ is, then, a sacred and important truth which is believed by all true Christians. Post, ah, and premillennialists differ not in regard to its reality, but in regard to the manner, time, and circumstances of the Lord's coming, the efficacy of the gospel to win the world, the purpose of the church in the present dispensation, and in regard to the role to be played by the Jews prior to and following the return of Christ. We should like to close this chapter with a quotation from Dr. Snowden, a tribute to the church, which we believe will be more and more appreciated as time goes on. Said he, Now the Christian church is not yet wholly Christian, and has spots and stains enough on its robes to satisfy the most envious or venomous critics. But neither was the church wholly Christian in the beginning when the Spirit was poured out upon it in Pentecostal power. Nevertheless, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and we should love it too with a jealous love. He loves it still, and only the most jaundiced eye or prejudiced theory can magnify its faults and minimize its virtues. The church has in it the spirit of Christ, and today it is better, more Christ-like in spirit and service and self-sacrifice than it ever was in the past. It is the human channel to which Christ committed his gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And on an even greater scale and in greater efficiency, it is carrying out the Great Commission as it is making disciples of all the nations. Take the church out of the world and the light of the world would be lost and its salt would lose its savor. The church is more Christian today than it ever was before and this better church is making a better world. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, page 267. Chapter 20, page 363. Historical Aspects From the apostolic age until the 16th century, the only type of premillennialism in existence, then called Chileism, was that which we have characterized as historic premillennialism. Those who held it believed that the church would go through the tribulation. Many who endured the persecutions under the Roman emperors thought that they were then in the tribulation, and that when Christ returned he would immediately set up the millennial kingdom. The early premillennialists knew nothing about a system of seven dispensations, a secret rapture seven years before the public appearance of Christ, a seventieth week of Daniel's prophecy to be fulfilled between two future comings of Christ, or a Jewish-dominated kingdom. They believed that the events foretold in the book of Revelation would have their fulfillment in this era before the return of Christ. The expectations of the Jews, both of a territorial restoration and of a revived Judaism, were rejected as fanciful and as contrary to Scripture. Premillennialists make a great deal of the fact that premillennialism was found in the early church and that it continued in some degree up through the 4th century, but that in itself means practically nothing. The fact of the matter is that numerous errors crept into the early church almost from the days of the apostles. That was the age in which Christian theology existed in its most elementary form. The new church was traveling an uncharted path and progress was slow. Centuries were to pass before it had time to recognize and reject erroneous presentations and to state its belief in systematic form. 
The first real start was made in the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., and even then the principal doctrine dealt with was the person of Christ, the council declaring for his full deity as opposed to the Arian heresy which held that he was only the first of created beings and therefore not really divine. A brief survey of the errors that came to expression in the early church should enable us to see more clearly of how little importance was the existence of premillennialism in that period. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.